Welcome to Very Old Money, a podcast that looks at history through money. Episode 3.6, Karanaya. Hello everyone, welcome back and it's time for another episode. I hope all of you are safe and are doing well. The usual announcement before we begin, if you are listening to this podcast on YouTube instead of regular podcatchers, please hit the subscribe button below the video. Also, please make sure to hit the bell icon to the right and choose all notifications. That way, you will automatically be notified as new episodes load. If the coins I mention in today's cover art do not show up in your podcatcher, you can view all the coin images at the website at veryoldmoney.com. We have two coins in the cover art today and both of them are from Agora Auctions and you can visit them at agoraauctions.com. Last time we saw Philip effectively establish himself as the hegemon of Greece at the end of the exhausting sacred war. Thessaly and Thebes were exhausted and Athens had been forced to sue for peace after being outflanked. As a member of the Amphictyonic League, nobody could challenge Philip's Greekness anymore. Unfortunately, as we'll find out today, that was not always true. Snobs will be snobs. By now, Philip was looking to unite the Greeks into an attack on Persia. And he may have wanted to use the Amphictyonic League as his tool for the goal, but that was not to be. One final showdown and the most important battle of his reign remained. But before that came consolidation of his gains in previous decades and securing his borders to the north and the west. To achieve this, Philip first went to war against the Illyrians in 345 and was almost killed in the battle, which would have abruptly cut short our story and changed future history. But he survived and his eventual victory led to the son of our old friend Bardylus becoming his vassal. Around 342 BC, Philip interfered in the affairs of the Molossian kingdom of Epirus, home of his chief queen, Olympias. Olympias' father, Neoptolemus, had been king and had ruled jointly with his brother, Aribas. But when Neoptolemus died around 357 BC, Aribas had become king of all Epirus. Around 350 BC, Alexander, the son of Neoptolemus and the brother of Olympias, was brought to Macedon as a hostage. And once in Macedon, he became a huge admirer of Philip, possibly even his Eromenos. In 342, Philip decided to put his protege on the Epirite throne. Aribas fled to Athens, where he was promised, but never actually received help to recover his throne. Alexander now became the new king of Epirus, as Alexander I. Now this marital alliance with the Macedonian royal house would tie the kingdom of Epirus into Macedonian politics and would eventually suck it into the war of the successors after Alexander the Great passed away. Alexander I of Epirus will himself play a role in our story when we return to the Macedonian story two episodes from now and more details of that at the end of the episode. While Aribas fades from our story, both his sons, spoiler alert, will become kings of Epirus, and they will be participants in the wars of the successors, as will the grandson of Aribas, 
possibly the most famous king of Epirus, and whose name has survived through the ages by being attached to victories that are considered tantamount to defeats. After taking care of Epirus, next was the turn of Thrace, where over the next two years Philip appears to have campaigned as far north as the Danube, and in doing so he took the sixth of his seven wives, Meda of Odessos, whose father ruled the Gitae close to where the Danube meets the Black Sea. Thrace was a stubborn land to subdue, as the successors of Alexander would discover, and yet Philip succeeded in bringing the Thracian kings to vassalage. Two episodes ago, I mentioned Philip founding the city of Philippi and naming it after himself. Now, like his son, he liked naming things after himself, and one result of this campaign into Thrace was the founding of the city of Philippopolis on the site of an earlier Thracian settlement. Over time, Philippopolis would grow into a city of 100,000 in Roman times. Now remember, medieval London in the 13th century was only 20,000 people. And the reason for this is it takes a lot of food to sustain a major urban settlement. And one of the achievements of antiquity was a scale of urbanization that would not be matched in Europe for another millennium once the Dark Ages took place. Late Roman times were tough on Philippopolis. It was burned by the Goths in 250 CE. It would be destroyed again by Attila the Hun in 442 and once more by the Goths under Theodoric Strabo in 471. By the 6th century, Philippopolis appears to have taken on the local Thracian name Pulpudeva, Dava being the Dacian name for city. And it appears the connections to Philip of Macedon seem to have been forgotten, as the historian Jordanus, who wrote about that time, attributes the name to the later and much less impressive Roman Emperor Philip the Arab. The name eventually appears to have settled on Plovdiv, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering the pronunciation, I probably am. But this city with 350,000 residents and almost 675,000 residents in the metropolitan area is now the second largest city in Bulgaria, and it was founded by Philip II of Macedonia. The end of the Thracian campaign saw the beginning of the breakdown of the peace that had ended the Third Sacred War. I have not previously mentioned the Athenian statesman Demosthenes. Even though he had supported the previous peace with Philip, he had regretted it almost instantly, and he was the voice of the Athenian war party. Demosthenes is probably best remembered today for his orations against Philip, called the Philippics which today refer to tirades directed against a political opponent. Towards the end of the Roman Republic, similar attacks by the Roman orator Cicero against Mark Antony would be modeled on the speeches of Demosthenes, and even in Cicero's own lifetime, some of these speeches would be known as Philippics. The first Philippic came soon after Philip's huge victory at the Battle of Crocus Field that we discussed in the last episode. The second came soon after the end of the Sacred War in 344-343 BC, as Demosthenes tried to get the cities of the Peloponnese to break from Macedonia. Unfortunately, he ran into basic strategic reality. These cities for a long time had seen Sparta as their biggest threat, and now Athens was in the very unusual position of being allied with Sparta, and as a result, they saw Macedon as the guarantor of their liberty. 
Now, the third Philippic, considered by some to be Demosthenes' finest speech, came in 341 BC as the peace with Macedonia was starting to break down. The trouble started with Philip's army approaching the Thracian Chersonese, better known today as Gallipoli, during his Thracian campaign. An Athenian general ravaged the territory of an ally of Philip, and when Philip demanded that Athens withdraw, Demosthenes, after giving a speech to the Athenian assembly, convinced them that Philip was in the wrong. Soon afterwards came the actual third Philippic, which is a fascinating piece of writing. He mixes personal attacks on Philip, on Macedon itself, with attacks on the Athenian peace party, and provides a litany of Macedonian warmongering while claiming that he is not engaging in such activity himself. According to Demosthenes, and I quote, Philip, although not only is he no Hellene, not only has he no kinship with the Hellenes, but he's not even a barbarian from a country that one could acknowledge with credit. He's a pestilent Macedonian from whose country it used not to be possible to buy even a slave of any value. And in spite of this, is there any degree of insolence to which he does not proceed? Not content with annihilating cities, does he not manage the Pythian games, the common meeting of the Hellenes, and send his slaves to preside over the competition in his absence? Is he not the master of Thermopylae and of the passes which lead into Hellenic territory? Does he not hold that district with garrisons and mercenaries? Has he not taken the precedence in consulting the oracle and thrust aside ourselves and the Thessalians and the Dorians and the rest of the Amphictyons, though the right is not one which is given even to all of the Hellenes? End quote. And then he goes on. After listing why Athens needs to take action, he calls for Athens to rearm and build alliances. I quote, While we are still safe with our great city, our vast resources, our noble name, what are we to do? Perhaps someone sitting here has long been wishing to ask this question. I and I will answer it, and will move my motion, and you will carry it if you wish. We ourselves in that place must conduct the resistance and make preparations for it with ships, that is, and money, and soldiers. For though all but ourselves give way and become slaves, we at least must contend for freedom. And when we have made all these preparations ourselves and let them be seen, then let us call upon the other states for aid and send envoys to carry our message in all directions, to the Peloponnese, to Rhodes, to Chios, to the king, which he's talking about the great king of Persia. For it is not unimportant for his interests either that Philip should be prevented from subjugating the world, that, so if you persuade them, you may have partners to share the danger and the expense in case of need, and if you do not, you may at least delay the march of events." End quote. Before asking for the proposal to be accepted, he emphasizes the importance of Athenian leadership and invokes the past greatness of Athens. I quote, But I do not mean that we should call upon the other states if we are not willing to take any of the necessary steps ourselves. It is folly to sacrifice what is our own and then pretend to be anxious for the interests of others, to neglect the present and alarm others in regard to the future. I do not propose this. I say, 
that we must send money to the forces in the Chersonese and do all that they ask of us, that we must make preparations ourselves while we summon, convene, instruct, and warn the rest of the Hellenes. That is the policy for a city with a reputation such as yours. But if you fancy that the people of Chalcis or Megara will save Hellas while you run away from the task, you are mistaken. They may well be content if they can each save themselves. The task is yours. It is the prerogative that your forefathers won and through many a great peril bequeathed to you. But if each of you is to sit and consult his inclinations, looking for some way by which he may escape any personal action, the first consequence will be that you will never find anyone who will act, and the second, I fear, that the day will come when we shall be forced to do, at one and the same time, all the things we wish to avoid. End quote. The third Philippic is a pretty powerful speech, and I read out huge chunks of it, but obviously there is a lot more, and it's well worth a read. So I put a link to the public orations of Demosthenes on the website at veryallmoney.com, and it should also appear in the show notes on your podcatcher. So while Demosthenes was evoking the legendary past of Athens, it is important to remember that the Athens of 341 BC was not the Athens of a century earlier. The long Peloponnesian War, which included the plague of Athens, had sapped Athenian strength. While Athens had made a remarkable recovery in the aftermath of his defeat, this recovery was shaky, and it was enabled by the demographic limits of Spartan power that we have covered in an earlier episode. The citizen population of Athens had dropped about 60%, from 40,000 to about 15,000. While the Athenian navy was still huge, Athens could not afford to keep it active for long periods, both in terms of money and manpower. The third Philippic may have been followed by a fourth Philippic, which called for an embassy to be sent to the great king of Persia, and this embassy was actually sent. But the authorship of this fourth speech, however, is questioned and may have been written by somebody else. However, I would like to note the irony of Athens now looking for the Persians for help against a new boogeyman, and I think this is too rich to ignore. For most of the last 160 years, Athens and Persia have been rivals. Now, we will cover what's been going on in Persia since the death of Cyrus the Great in an episode soon, but these years saw the Greco-Persian Wars, the repeated Athenian attacks to liberate Ionia and even Egypt and Cyprus. Persian intervention likely helped tip the balance in favor of Sparta in the Peloponnesian War. While in recent years, Persian policy was to protect the balance of power in Greece and prevent one faction from gaining dominance, in 354, Athens had sent military assistance to the rebellious satrap of Phrygia. And in 351, Athenian and Spartan generals helped the last pharaoh of Egypt block a Persian invasion. Yet by this time, the great king was slowly waking up to the rising Macedonian threat. And even as he was waking up, he was not willing to go to war to support Athens just yet. The embassy was rebuffed, and Philip, who found out about it, was infuriated. But before we move along the slide into war, let's take a quick look at the coins of the cover art today. Both of these are lifetime tetradrams of Philip, 
and the obverse portrait of a bearded laureate Zeus is probably one of the most recognizable coin images from Philip's reign. I've heard people speculate that the portrait of Zeus could be a portrait of Philip himself, with casting Philip as Zeus. As we previously discussed, there's a lot of debate about Alexander, uh, the coins of Alexander with Heracles, Hercules, being portraits of Alexander himself, and it appears later generations may have felt that. But we don't know if Philip was audacious enough to present himself as Zeus. This is all speculation. The first coin is 26.4 millimeters and 14.22 grams from the Amphipolis Mint, struck between 355 and 349 BC. And the second one is 14.42 grams, also from Amphipolis, and it is likely struck in the last years of Philip's reign. Both carry the same legend in Greek, Philippoi, which is in the genitive case of King Philip, but the reverses are different. The first appears to have a more mature rider wearing a kausia, which is a particular type of flat hat, as you can see in the image, a clamis with his cloak billowing out behind him and raising his right hand in salute, and he's riding, the horse is riding left. There's a mark of a bow under the raised foreleg. Now this person could actually be a representation of Philip himself, since it's a more mature rider, but there's obviously not a proper portrait, but this could be Philip himself on his own coin, albeit on the reverse. The second has a jockey riding with a prancing horse and with a fly and a prow underneath. As discussed in previous episodes, this could represent one of Philip's Olympic victories, which he used to enhance his credentials of being Greek. So let's get back to the story. So while the great king was not Willing to openly go to war against Macedon, he did order his satraps to send money, food, and weapons to the city of Perinthos when Philip put it under siege in 340 BC. The city of Byzantion, site of the future Constantinople, now known as Istanbul, also sent aid which put it at war with Philip, and as a result, it too was put under siege. Control of Byzantion would give Philip control of the Bosphorus and the ability to choke the grain supply going to Athens down the Bosphorus. As I mentioned, large urban centers need food and Attica did not produce enough of it to support Athens, even with its diminished population. Athens now openly sent naval aid to Byzantium and given their superiority at sea, the aid from Athens and the great king frustrated Philip. So rather than be bogged down, in two sieges of cities which could be supplied by sea, Philip decided to move on to Athens directly. But yet, before this campaign, Philip went to another war on his northern front against the Scythians. And while he was victorious, he added yet another battle wound to a body covered with scars. In the battle, a spear went through his leg and, and killed his horse. And yet again, Philip survived. Philip's final campaign was also tied up with the Fourth Sacred War that I mentioned at the end of last episode. As with previous sacred wars, it involved the unauthorized tilling of sacred land, this time by the city of Amphissa. The Amphictyonic League declared war and Philip was again made leader of the League army. Now even though Philip was likely headed against Athens, this likely gave him another excuse to march into Greece. 
Meanwhile, the Thebans had fortified Nicaea near Thermopylae, which blocked Philip's movement through the pass. But Philip was able to outflank them by using the same path that Xerxes had used against the Spartans in the more famous Battle of Thermopylae. And I must note, as a digression, this is not the last time this path would play a role in future warfare. In 191 BC, it played a decisive role in another Battle of Thermopylae between the Romans and Antiochus the Great, the Seleucid king of Syria. Now, to his credit, since the pass was well known, Antiochus had fortified it with allied troops, and the Romans had to actually storm the pass. But having done so, they were able to flank the Seleucids and gain an easy victory. By flanking Thermopylae, Philip was able to reach Alatea, where he won the gra gratitude of the Phocians, the targets of the Third Sacred War, by refounding the city and allowing them to reconstitute their confederation. Now we can quickly dispense with poor Amphissa, which was sacked and its population was expelled. But as with Phocis, that's not the end of their story, and the city would be refounded less than 20 years later. Elatea was only a three days march from Athens, and Demosthenes stiffened the resolve of the Athenians, and he was sent as an envoy to Thebes. Thebes had the ability to block Philip's further progress to, through Boeotia towards Athens. Now, Thebes was not yet at war with Philip, and it had a long history of enmity with Athens, as I've discussed in previous episodes. Now, Philip did ask the Thebans for access. Thebes could have avoided this war, but there were likely many in the city who had grown uncomfortable with the rise of Macedonia. This and the desire to fight for the liberty of the Greek polis made them align with their old enemies, the Athenians. And the Athenian army was already on its way and was able to link up with the Thebans within days after the alliance was completed. Now this allied army blocked Philip at Chaeronea, which is northwest of Thebes. On paper, or papyrus, since we don't have paper in Europe at the time, the opposing armies were relatively evenly matched. Philip likely had about 30,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry. The Allies likely had about 35,000 infantry. While the majority of the Allied contingent was supplied by Athens and Thebes, it also included contingents from Achaea, Corinth, Chalcis, Epidaurus, Megara, and Troezen. Demosthenes himself fought with the Athenians in the line as a regular hoplite. But while the armies were even on papyrus, there was a distinct difference in quality. The day of the part-time citizen hoplite who trained and fought for his city only when needed was fading. For the last two decades, Philip had been building a battle-hardened professional army. Many of the soldiers on the Allied side, notably the Athenians, were inexperienced and had very little military experience over the last 25 years. And for Athens, this was likely a result of the demographic decline that I mentioned before. With a smaller citizen population, Athens was just not as warlike as it had been in the age of Miltiades, Themistocles, and Pericles. Athens had gone to war, but the hoplites had not seen much action. The battle that took place at Chaeronea is also 
an important historical marker because it's the first record we have of the 18-year-old Alexander in battle. Now while he was given command of a wing of the Macedonian army, he was under the supervision of senior generals and the young prince would acquit himself superbly. Philip commanded the Macedonian right wing, which faced the Athenians on the Allied left. Alexander commanded the Macedonian left and possibly the companion cavalry, and more on that later, against the Thebans on the Allied right. The remaining Allied contingents were placed in the center. Philip appears to have been aware of the Athenian inexperience and his battle plan took full advantage of it. Basically, it appears to have been the strategy that was the favorite of steppe warriors over the next 1500 years, the feigned retreat. The entire Macedonian army swiveled, refused battle, and started to withdraw to, a, to higher ground. As expected, the inexperienced Athenians took the bait and surged forward trying to chase the Macedonians. And as the, Athen the, as the Athenians on the left surged forward, they started to create a gap in the Allied center as the units allied to Athens and Thebes and the sacred band of Thebes struggled to keep up. And as this gap was created, into this gap surged Alexander. The ancient historian Diodorus uses the term companions and this has been interpreted to mean Alexander charged at the head of the wedge of the companion cavalry. In recent years, this has been questioned as no other account specifically mentions cavalry and Plutarch appears to suggest it was the Macedonian phalanx that won the day. Others have questioned whether it was advisable to have a cavalry charge straight into a phalanx. Now, Alexander, as we'll discuss later in future episodes, was a notable user of cavalry, particularly in his feint at the Battle of Gogamela. But it is possible that Caronea was actually just a phalanx victory, and it was a total victory. The Theban phalanx was no match for the Sarissa phalanx, and it broke. The sacred band was surrounded, refused to surrender, and was wiped out. Plutarch notes that all 300 of the until then deemed invincible band fell next to their commander. The band was destroyed. Two miles away, having gained higher ground, Philip then turned on the by now ex exhausted Athenians, routed them, killing 1,000 and capturing 2,000. The Thebans suffered similar losses. The victory was so decisive, it effectively ended the war. Corinth and Athens desperately tried to fortify themselves, but no siege would be needed and Philip basically imposed his peace terms. There was no army in the field that was able to challenge Philip and Macedon. Now before we move on to the peace terms, let's have a quick note about the monument that was erected to the fallen at Caronea. Greek historians of the Roman period, Strabo and later Pausanias, mentioned, mentioned tombs to the fallen erected at public expense. Pausanias mentions that the Thebans erected a giant statue of a lion over the tomb. And over the centuries, this lion disappeared, and in 1818, the head of this lion was discovered by a British visitor to the site, George Ledwell Taylor, and he also discovered the other pieces of the statue. The 3.8 meter high statue was reconstructed in 1902. 
19th century excavations also discovered the corpses of 254 men laid out in seven rows. Near the monument was another grave where the remains of cremated Macedonian dead were, were recovered. These 254 bodies are generally believed to have been the remains of the sacred band. Now it's 254, not 300, so it suggests that 46 may have survived, contrary to the account given by Plutarch, or they might have been buried or cremated elsewhere. Philip was severe on the Thebans. He made them pay for the return of their prisoners and the privilege of burying their dead, and that appears to be the grave found on the site of the battle. But he was not out to besiege and destroy cities. He wanted the Greeks united and allied to him because he now wanted to turn Greece against Persia. Athens was treated lightly with his prisoners released without ransom and this may have been a strategic move to get the support of the Athenian fleet. Philip then moved about trying to make deals with Greek cities even though Sparta, which had not joined the campaign, refused to negotiate. According to Plutarch, Philip sent a message to the Spartans and asked them whether they wished Philip should come as a friend or as a foe. And the Spartans replied with their famous laconic brevity, neither. Irritated, Philip then sent them a more hostile message. I quote, You are advised to submit without further delay, for if I bring my army into your land, I will destroy your farms, slay your people, and raise your city. End quote. Now dialing up the natural laconic instinct to Calvin Coolidge levels, the Spartan ephors replied with a single word, if. Now Philip did ravage Spartan territory, but he left the city of Sparta itself alone. Sparta would remain aloof from the emerging anti-Persian league that I will talk about in a little bit. Sparta would eventually face Macedon on the field, but this would not be while Philip was still alive. The end result of all this was the creation in 337 by Philip of the Hellenic League, which basically for the first time created a confederation of almost all the Greek city-states except Sparta. Now this league is referred to by modern historians as the League of Corinth, and the reason for this is this was just one of five leagues in antiquity named the Hellenic League. The first one, of course, is the famous one, the alliance of the Greek states against Persia in the 5th century BC during the Persian Wars. Why is this called the League of Corinth? Because the first council of the League was held in Corinth, where Philip had camped his army. As I said, Sparta was not a part of this league at its inception, but six years later, after the war I mentioned, they would be forced to join by Alexander. Now this league would survive for about 15 years until it was dissolved in 322 during the Lamian War that followed the death of Alexander. Now the creation of this particular Hellenic League, and I'll just call it the League of Corinth from now on, sounded the death knell of the political independence of the Greek polis in many respects. Now many cities were not garrisoned, they had considerable political autonomy, but the Macedonian king was now hegemon. City-states were forbidden from taking up arms against him or his descendants and successors or changing the constitutions of their cities. Now the first city to break this oath two years later on the accession of Alexander 
would be destroyed, wiped off the map, and his citizens sold into slavery. But we'll discuss that event in a later episode, which should appear soon. So now Philip finally had his united Greek alliance to begin his war against Persia. Alexander, his heir and only capable acknowledged son, had proven himself on the battlefield as a worthy successor, if anything happened to his father. And, as I've mentioned before in the last few episodes, Philip's tendency to attract sharp pointy objects in battle made it impossible to rule out that happening. And just as Philip was riding high in the glow of his huge victory, he took his seventh and last wife. And the wedding banquet resulted in a humiliating scandal that tore the Macedonian royal family apart. War with Persia would have to wait until Philip could stitch Humpty Dumpty back together again. But that is a story for another episode, which will be two episodes from now. As we leave this episode, Philip is now the acknowledged hegemon of Greece. But as I promised in the last episode, we will take this opportunity to take a quick look back at an almost forgotten character in history, who suddenly rose to prominence, and he, and not Philip, could have been the man that united Greece, until an assassin's dagger entered those dreams. Karl Marx, in his work, The 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon, noted, History repeats, first as a tragedy, then as a farce. Unfortunately, in this case, the sequence suggested by Marx was actually backwards. The Alexander who would succeed the subject of next week's episode was not of the same caliber as the Alexander who succeeded Philip. So we'll see you next time in episode 3.7, The Hegemon Who Never Was. See you soon and stay safe everyone. If you like this episode, please give this podcast a 5-star review on iTunes or the podcatcher from where you access this podcast. This is a new podcast and good reviews are essential in getting the word out. Thank you for your support.